Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Before we begin, I just wanted to remind you that the listener survey is still open. On reaching 50 episodes, I wanted to get a better idea of what you like about the show, what you think the next 50 episodes should sound like. So if you have five minutes, I'd love to hear what you think. It's at wtdepodcast.com slash survey. And thanks so much to those of you who have filled it out already. I'm Connor Reed with words to that effect. Stories of the fiction that shapes popular culture. The desert grows. Woe to him who harbors deserts within. Well, I suppose my inspiration for the book was pretty unusual one. Um, for many years, uh, before I actually started writing the thing, I, I was obsessed with a line from the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, and it, it appears in a in a piece of poetry that Nietzsche wrote. The desert grows. Woe to him who harbors deserts within. He was a philosopher, but he often wrote in the, in poetic forms as well. So this, there was this repeating refrain in one of his books, and uh, it was very puzzling and enigmatic to me. And I started investigating it, and what I discovered was that uh, throughout European philosophy from the late nineteenth century, throughout the twentieth century, the desert figures as a motif, a symbol of the exhaustion of the Western tradition or or of Western metaphysics, as philosophers might call it. And this has to do with the decline of Christianity uh, and things like that. I'm talking to Dr. Aidan Tynan. I'm Aidan Tynan. I am a senior lecturer in English literature at Cardiff University. And uh, I've just written a book about deserts and wastelands in modern literature and philosophy. I wanted to chat to someone who had explored all the ways that deserts appear in literature and culture, what the desert symbolises, how it gets represented in the popular imagination. This episode is the second in a loosely connected series on places in fiction and popular culture. Number one was Antarctica, two episodes back, and I have some more locations coming in future episodes. So the topic of deserts is, and this is hardly unsurprising, a large one. An area, in fact, as sprawling and complex and intriguing as the desert itself. But let's give it a go. So Nietzsche was writing about a growing desert representing a decline of Western culture, an apocalyptic image. And the desert as apocalypse is certainly an image that has persisted in art and culture since, which we'll come back to. So that philosophical motif of the desert was was what got me into writing the book. Um, I, I was also uh, fascinated by an idea from the American environmental philosopher Paul Shepard, uh, who argued uh, that the fundamental categories of Western thought 
were formed on the desert fringes. So in places like uh, the Middle East, North Africa, the Mediterranean, these places which are just on the border uh, with deserts. Uh, these were the, uh, the, the kind of key places in which Western thought, Western culture itself was formed. Uh, and so running throughout Western culture, you have this uh, division between what we might call the desert on the sown or the, uh, the kind of the, the sedentary uh, notion of place and then the, the nomadic desert notion. I mean, this goes back to the Old Testament as well. So Cain, uh, who uh, famously killed Abel, was a, a farmer. He toiled the land, uh, but Abel was a pastoralist, a nomad. So you have running throughout Western culture, this opposition of the nomadic and the sedentary. So there's a tension between the nomadic and the sedentary, the shepherd and the farmer, land which is enclosed and owned and farmed, and land, like a desert, which is wild, unknown and uncultivated. In the quote from Nietzsche at the beginning, Dr. Tynan points out that in the original German, Wüste can be translated as desert, but also as wasteland. And these two words are often interconnected. A wasteland, of course, doesn't have to be a desert, and deserts in turn are very much not wastelands. They have their own complex ecosystems, plants and insects and animals and so on, even if this is not always that apparent to human onlookers. But when deserts are seen as wastelands, it's often in the same opposition as before. The nomadic and the sedentary deserts are uncultivated land, useless land. There's a great book uh, called Wasteland History by Vittoria de Palma, and uh, what she argues is that uh, in 17th and 18th century Britain, kind of unimproved land, land that wasn't agriculturally productive, like fens and, and common lands and things like that, that these were regarded as wastelands. And there was uh, not only a, an economic, but also a moral and uh, a religious duty to, uh, to kind of cultivate these areas, to make them productive. Uh, there's a line in the Old Testament, build up the waste places. Uh, and, and so that there was a kind of theological uh, motivation, the development of modern agriculture, and, and that involved the enclosure of common lands and the growth of agrarian capitalism. So out of this sort of wasteland aesthetics uh, emerges modern ideas of agriculture, capitalist notions that you know the productivity of the land should be measured uh, in economic terms. So that's the background, or at least a part of it. There's a theological tradition and biblical tales around cultivating land and the nomadic and farming lifestyles. There's a long philosophical tradition of symbolic deserts, a tradition which was itself first formed on the fringes of the desert. And then all of this from a continent with very few actual deserts. I mean, there are some deserts in Europe, in Spain and a few other places, but they're mostly fairly small or they're only kind of technically deserts in a more limited way. I don't know if I ask you to think of a desert right now. Chances are you're thinking of maybe endless sand dunes in the Sahara or the Middle East or cactuses and tumbleweed in Mexico or the US. Maybe you're listening to this in Arizona or Chile or Western Australia and you really do live surrounded by desert. But chances are you probably don't. And yet that doesn't really matter at all. As was the case with Antarctica a few episodes back, just because most people haven't experienced a place, it doesn't mean it can't loom large in the public imagination. And in fairness, a hell of a lot more people visit deserts every year than Antarctica. Which, just to confuse things, is actually also a desert because of the extreme lack of precipitation. But let's not go there. 
So how do we tend to imagine and portray the desert? And what does it say about us and our relationship to each other? And crucially, to the planet we live on? So I touched on this at the very beginning, but there is a strong apocalyptic strain running through our depictions of deserts. The Mad Max franchise perfectly encapsulates this. Set in a dystopian desert wasteland future, the series of films has been hugely influential on depictions of post-apocalyptic worlds. More recently, the ridiculous and utterly wonderful Mad Max Fury Road revisited and reinvigorated the franchise 30 years after the end of the original trilogy. And there's more to come. The fifth instalment is due for release in 2023, and fittingly for this discussion is entitled Mad Max The Wasteland. There are many other apocalyptic depictions of deserts which, unlike Mad Max, don't involve fire-breathing, rock-guitar-playing homicidal maniacs strapped to grotesquely remade desert vehicles, sadly. Cormac McCarthy's The Road is a novel I've talked about before on this show. It's certainly post-apocalyptic and it's definitely set in a wasteland, although it's not really a desert. McCarthy, however, has written extensively about desert landscapes. McCarthy himself was uh, wrote repeatedly about the, the desert borderlands uh, of you know New Mexico, uh, the New Mexico-Mexico border, and he wrote a really... Uh, for me, one of the great masterpieces of American fiction, uh, Blood Meridian. It's not a novel for everyone. It's, it's probably the most violent and one of the most disturbing novels I've ever read. Um, but it, it's set in the years around and just after the Mexican-American War, uh, the mid-late 19th century. It tells a story o- over a few decades of a criminal gang who were um, committing genocide against uh, the local peoples, the indigenous peoples. Uh, and it's a story about how you know, America is founded on violence and bloodshed and genocide. Um, but the desert uh, in that text, the way McCarthy evokes the desert is is absolutely astonishing. He uses a kind of a biblical, an Old Testament landscape, uh, an incantation-like language to describe the desert uh, as this landscape of death and despair. Uh, and so it's a very much a novel of wasteland, of, of negative imagery of the desert, but he uses it to symbolize sort of the violence that was uh, you know, at the origins of America. Violence is so often at the centre of post-apocalyptic novels, for survival, for control when power structures have failed, for access to resources. There's obviously that connection in many people's minds between deserts and oil, but the resource that is most scarce is, of course, water. Paolo Bacigalupi's The Water Knife looks at this in a dystopian future, where in a drought-ridden, desertified US, each state's access to water is key. The poor scramble to stay alive, while the rich live in closed-off arcologies, luxurious, self-contained high-rise buildings designed to conserve and reuse water. Bacigalupi is using the portmanteau of architecture and ecology, arcology, a real-life set of design principles that explores how to create buildings that can have high population densities but very low ecological impact. And in the story, the water knife in question is a person, Angel, or possibly Angel, who is hired by those who own water supplies to sabotage those of their rivals. So in lots of cases, the desert is post-apocalyptic, and in many of these is firmly in the area of science fiction. 
My favorite examples are, are from J.G. Ballard's novels, uh, The Drought, for example. It imagines this future scenario in which uh, a film, uh, a chemical film, forms across the world's oceans and there's no more rain uh, and the world just turns into a desert. And uh, the characters are, are wandering through these, these sand dunes with like broken down cars and things like that, uh, discarded everywhere. There's another novel by Ballard called Hello America, which is very interesting to us because it features the 45th American president who was named, uh, President Manson. Of course, he just had the 45th president. He was, he was named Trump, but in, in Ballard's, uh, uh, dystopian future, uh, it's, it's President Manson. And um, in that future scenario, the deserts that currently occupy the, kind of the western part of the country have moved over into the east, and the west is now a kind of tropical paradise. Um, uh, so deserts have often featured in science fiction uh, to think about kind of utopia and dystopia and, and, and the strange, strangely sort of uh, narrow, thin line between the two. Uh, another great example of that, another great novel is Octavia Butler's The Parable of the Sower. Uh, that's set in a future California overrun with wildfires. Uh, it's set in the mid 2020s, I think 2025. So, uh, it's proving, uh, uh, quite, um, quite accurate and prescient. Then there's all those deserts on other planets. I've talked before on this show about science fiction set on Mars, about the similarities between the Martian landscape and Earth's deserts. Go have a listen to episode 4, if you like, all about these supposed canals on Mars, built to conserve water on a planet dying of drought and desertification. It's from this that we get Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars stories, H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds, and so many others. These stories went on to inspire the likes of Steven Spielberg and George Lucas, and there's another desert connection, too. One of the novels I write about in my book is uh, uh, T.E. Lawrence's Seven Pillars of Wisdom. And T.E. Lawrence was better known as Lawrence of Arabia. He was a participant in the um, the Arab Revolt during the First World War, in which essentially uh, the British forces drew on the support of uh, the Bedouin tribes of the deserts of Jordan and, and Saudi Arabia and places like that uh, to fight against uh, the Ottoman Empire. And the Germans and uh, Lawrence wrote this uh, uh, famous account of his uh, experiences, um, but it was filmed as Lawrence of Arabia um, by David Lean in 1962, I think, and that had a huge effect on Steven Spielberg uh, and also other filmmakers of that generation, like uh, uh, George Lucas. Uh, and, and so when you get the, uh, the scenes of the desert planet Tatooine and films like Star Wars, or when you get the, we, the desert scene, uh, the Indiana Jones movies, what, what you're seeing there is the influence of Lawrence of Arabia on, on, on these filmmakers. And Lawrence of Arabia's music was by the renowned film composer Maurice Jarre in his first film score. He later went on to score lots of science fiction films, including the third Mad Max installment. Look at all those desert connections. And of course, if you're talking about desert science fiction and about influences on Lucas and Spielberg and practically everybody else, you have to mention Frank Herbert's 1965 novel Dune and its numerous sequels. It's a story in which warring factions vie to gain control of the dangerous desert planet of Arrakis, so important because it's the only place where a hugely valuable drug is available, the spice. There's courtly intrigue and subterfuge, but there's also a carefully and beautifully realised desert ecology, 
with water scarcity at its centre. There's a new film version being released later this year, actually. So, before we go on, I wanted to take a very quick break to tell you about two extremely important things. Firstly, as I'm sure you're aware, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, and Headstuff Plus is our membership platform, which you can join for €5 plus VAT a month. In return, you get a load of bonus content, so not only the bonus episodes and other lovely things from this show, but extras from every single show on the network. And you help me make more episodes of WTTE for you, so everyone wins. So go to headstuffpodcasts.com, headstuffpodcasts.com, and you can find out more details about all of that. And speaking of Headstuff, why not check out another show on the network, like Fail Harder. This is a podcast where host Emma Jane chats to people at the top of their game about failure. This is a really good show. I would definitely recommend it. There have been lots of great guests like Paul Mescal and Panty Bliss and Louise O'Neill and plenty of others. And season three has recently kicked off. Have a listen. Hello, I'm Emma Jane from Fail Harder, the podcast that chats to people at the top of their game about failure, from their first memory of failure to how they cope with it now. I have some unbelievable guests on the show like Paul Meskel, James Cavanagh, Georgina Campbell. The list just goes on. And of course, we'd be mad to take failure too seriously. So every week I have 20 questions in front of me numbered at random. Most are straightforward. However, some are a little more unconventional. And in the spirit of failure, my guest can pick the numbers. They might not like the results, but life's not fair and neither is my podcast. So looking at all of these texts, and there are plenty more, Dr. Tyne and I chatted about Don DeLillo, Margaret Atwood, Claire V. Watkins, and a whole host of others. But you'll have to read his book to get more on that. But it got me thinking about what, if anything, all of these works have in common. Are there any ideas that run through most or all desert fiction, whether science fictional, post-apocalyptic, or more realist? Yeah, I mean, I guess what crops up again and again is this idea that we can lose the world, the world can collapse completely, but that it can also be remade uh, anew. So um, you have this disappearance and reappearance of the world. The world is you know, only what we've made it and we can make it anew. So often, you know, in the desert landscapes of fiction and popular culture, especially in uh, American popular culture, you have this idea uh, of the desert as offering a kind of salvation, even if that involves suffering. So you get ideas of death and rebirth definitely throughout a lot of these texts. You also get ideas of changing our perception, learning to perceive things anew and relearning what a place can be. Uh, and what place and space are. Uh, and, and I guess that's a lot of it's down to sort of hallucinatory perceptions that uh, you often find in, in desert places. Utopianism and dystopianism, remaking the world, a salvation from the everyday, a place outside society to perceive things anew. Personally, I kept thinking about one place. So... When did you when did you go? So I went to Burning Man in 2016. This is Maeve Canellan, a friend of mine. I like I literally know nothing about it. So what's the deal? How do you even get there or what do you how does it work? So Burning Man is pretty much a 9-day festival in the desert in Nevada, but 
it's it's quite interesting because people would say actually it's not a festival it's a recreation of a city and the main area that it's in is in a place called Black Rock City and it's based on a load of different kind of principles of well first and foremost 100% leave no trace so you come create this massive big city that has everything you need you leave nine days later and it looks like no one's ever been there. So it's a real appreciation for the land around you and the ecosystem. But that's kind of the first thing. But it's mad. It's people don't just go to Burning Man. Like there's a lot of people and they live this Burning Man culture and they have that in their lives and they're real burners and they kind of take the principles of Burning Man like in their day-to-day lives, which would be things of radical self-reliance is the first one radical inclusion so including people in everything you do radical it's all radical Mm. (laughs) Uh, self-expression and then it's all built around community so it's like a community where everyone is the friendliest people you will ever meet are a burning man everyone is so nice they're so inclusive they're so friendly and it's kind of this idea of participation um, and self-reliance which means that people bring the fun. So you don't have like, you know, a huge amount of acts that promoters bring in and play. Like people bring the fun themselves and it's how you participate within the culture of Burning Man. And plenty of people participate with the culture. 70,000 people go. It's huge. Like the playa itself is massive and everyone goes around on bicycles. And obviously there's no electricity or plumbing. So Everything is complete self-reliance. There are portaloos and toilets there and they're actually so well maintained, but uh, there's no electricity. So you have to, at nighttime, it's incredible. So you have to light yourself up, you and where you stay in your camp. So you have to have like glow in the dark, you know, lights and everything on your bike and all over your body. And then you have these art cars that go around breathing fire. So it gives this real magical kind of, I suppose like Mad Max kind of feel. And the culture behind the festival, the type of people it attracts, the atmosphere, well, it couldn't really be anywhere but a desert. You have these things called whiteouts. And because the sand is so, I don't even know if you call it sand, but whatever the alkaline, salty powder that creates the desert is so fine that when there is any kind of wind or wind storm or current, it can create these things called whiteouts where it lifts the dust into the air. So that's why you'll always see people walking around with goggles and masks on. It's actually to protect themselves. But walking through a whiteout is so surreal because it could be, you know, two o'clock in the day and, you know, completely clear out. And then five minutes, you're walking through the desert and then it's completely white and there could be 500 people around you, but you can't see one of them. You don't know where anybody is. Uh, and it's like walking through a cloud or something like that. So that's uh, pretty spectacular. Could it work elsewhere? If you had, like, where else is there, like, that expanse of open land? I think it's the feeling that you're kind of completely away from the world, if that makes sense. That kind of makes it so special. Like, you feel like you're, you're so far away from your own day-to-day reality. And it is that kind of how that all acts around you creates the kind of intensity of the culture, I suppose, that's in it as well. And alongside all this, you have another idea. The desert as symbolising the emptiness and pure superficiality of culture. The desert of the real, in the famous phrase by the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard. He wrote a remarkable travel book called America, or L'Amérique. 
you know, he, he spends much of the book just driving through the desert landscapes of Utah, uh, Nevada, Arizona, places like that. So he's, he's not giving you what you would expect from a, a travel book about America. He's not in like New York or Las Vegas or, um, the cities. He, he's driving through the desert landscapes and he's thinking to himself, these deserts, these are the perfect symbol of what has happened to culture in America because he's saying in America culture and this is his French snobbery coming into play, but in America, culture comes to die. And what we're left with is just this sort of pure superficiality, uh, what he called hyper-reality. There's nothing real about American culture. There's nothing authentic. And he looks at the the desert landscapes, the kind of inhuman mineralogical landscapes of the desert, uh, and he's saying this is the perfect symbol for postmodern American culture. And he gives us the phrase in that book, the desert of the real Meaning, when you look at postmodern culture, American culture, when you strip away everything, uh, when you strip away the representations, there's no real object underneath. There's just a sort of an emptiness or a desert. And so he gives us this phrase, the desert of the real. Deserts can be symbolic places of cultural and artistic emptiness and superficiality for Baudrillard. But they're also real-life places where emptiness, real or apparent, can be advantageous. Deserts are where things can happen far out of sight of curious or suspicious onlookers. Where better than the deserts of New Mexico for Walter White and Jesse Pinkman to cook up crystal meth in a camper van. But it can also be somewhere that can be conveniently construed as empty when required by governments or corporations. A place to bury toxic waste, say, or to test nuclear weapons. Rebecca Solnit has, has written a book called Savage Dreams about uh, nuclear testing in, in the deserts of Nevada uh, and, and places like that. Um, dozens and dozens of, of nuclear bombs were uh, set off, detonated in, in, in the deserts of the American Southwest during the Cold War. We think of Nagasaki and Hiroshima as the two kind of nuclear bomb detonations, but there's loads of testing that was going on and most of those were done in desert places. Let's finish, though, on a more positive note with the concept of salvage punk. It's a term that I take from Evan Calder Williams, who wrote uh, an interesting book called Combined and Uneven Apocalypse. And he contrasts salvage punk with cy cyberpunk and, uh, and steampunk. Um, but it, it's also an idea, I mean, it's essentially the Mad Max scenario where you're living in a world where everything is breaking down. It's a post-apocalyptic world, so you can't, you can't really fix anything permanently or you can't make any new stuff so you keep have, having to uh, to patch up what you already have it's an idea explored extensively by another author who has cropped up a number of times on this show china mieville so he's written books like the scar and uh, rail sea and these, these these are narratives set in post-apocalyptic worlds where salvaging stuff and, and, and kind of uh, uh, recycling things is the norm. These are often dirty, chaotic or anarchic worlds, but they can be beautiful and progressive in so many ways. Because they, you know, salvage punk is all about like recycling and uh, helping each other, helping, you know, acting collectively and all of that. So, yeah, so salvage punk is, you know, it's interesting because it, it's, it's this kind of dystopian vision of the future, but it also in some ways gives us a kind of, a guide to, to how to live better. In William Gibson's famous line, the street finds its own uses for things. But this punk is not cyberpunk, it's not technological. 
It's ecological. Ecology meaning basically everything is interconnected. And I guess what you get in salvage punk is the idea of just kind of making do and sticking things together and kind of constantly reconstructing the world. So the desert can offer hope and salvation, a place for radical self-expression and self-reliance, a place outside society. In the desert, you may die or you may be reborn again. But deserts too can be wastelands, harsh post-apocalyptic landscapes of violence and conflict, or a stark reminder of the climate crisis facing our planet. Deserts, in the end, are wonderfully, beautifully ambiguous places. That's it for another episode of Words to That Effect. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to my guest this week, Dr. Aidan Tynan. His book is out now, and if you'd like to know more about all of the areas we covered today, and obviously lots more, I'll put links to the book on the Words to That Effect website, which is wttepodcast.com. Thanks also to Maeve Canellan for chatting to me about Burning Man. Uh, oh, and also to Maria, who was the German voice of Nietzsche. You can follow the show at Words to That Effect on Instagram and Facebook and follow me on Twitter at CEDREID, C-E-D-R-E-I-D. You can get links to all sorts of things and previous episodes and, well, everything you'd like, really, on the website, wttepodcast.com. You can find a link there to support the show on Headstuff Plus. And, of course, there's that survey, wttepodcast.com slash survey. See you next time. 